If you would, would you please take a moment and turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. If you would like to use one of the blue Bibles in front of you, that is on page 1002. And the passage is also printed in your bulletins as well. Uh, Several of you already today uh, have come up to me, uh, not only today, but over the course of this week as well, and asked the question, a very natural and a good question, and I appreciate it. How was the sabbatical, right? How was it? You come up to me and say, how was uh, that time? It is actually a tough question to answer in a short conversation. I can give you a few snippets of it, but it always feels to me incomplete uh, when I've answered it in that way. And so here's what I've decided to do. I've decided to take the four Sundays that we have in November and kind of unpack for you what the Lord did with me and through his word over the course of this time, trying to collate uh, for myself and I think hopefully beneficial for all of us some of the reflections that I've had and been thinking about through this time of sabbatical. And we begin today with a sermon that I am calling Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, one of the reasons that I'm uh, calling it that and one of the reasons that that has been on my mind is because a couple of weeks ago, uh, I I grabbed off the shelf uh, two wonderful old books uh, that I've read. I don't know how many times I've read them now. Uh, But I don't know if any of you have read Chaim Potok. Uh, He's a Jewish rabbi, great fiction writer, uh, and I just love the way he thinks about things. Of course, don't agree with all of his theology about it. But in any case, in these books where you're reflecting on these various, or living in these various Jewish communities, Shabbat Shalom is a word or a phrase that is heard throughout them. And of course, you can probably put together the meaning of Shabbat Shalom if you didn't know it uh, already. It is to wish someone a peaceful Sabbath or a restful Sabbath, a common Jewish greeting that is given on the Sabbath. Our reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 4, which is talking about rest, and in particular, it is talking about sabbatical rest. Now, as our author works through this section, he's going to compare and contrast various, I'll call them iterations of this rest, various dimensions of this rest that God has given to us. And we'll work through that as we look at this passage. Uh, It is a theologically wonderfully rich and even complex uh, biblical theology of rest. But today, for the sake of this sermon and and, and my purposes for today, today I'm going to mine Uh, if you will, the surface nuggets of the text that is before us. So before I read, I'm going to read beginning at chapter 4. The context here, the setting, is that the reality has been discussed by our author that though promises of rest were made to Moses and to the people of God as they were coming out of Egypt, not everyone, in fact, entered into the rest, entered into the land of Canaan. And our author is reflecting on that by bringing it not only as a historical point of fact, that yes, it's true that many of the Israelites died in the wilderness and didn't enter into the land, but bringing it them forward to us and saying, now this is actually not about them only, it's about you as well. And so he applies it to us. Now then, here this portion of the living and active word of our living God who is here with us today and speaking to us 
through this same word, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Lord, as we are before you today, as we hear from you through your word preached, as we hear this good news, O great God in heaven, O mighty spirit, soften our hearts. May our hearts not be hardened as we hear this. Instead, may they be softened so that we hear these words as what they are, your truth so that they pierce into us and divide soul from marrow and, and get right down to the heart of things because they are your word. And so we pray that today you would help us to hear from you with soft hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We need rest. I need rest. You need rest. Rest is sown into the very fabric of creation. Rest is not a post-fall necessity. It's not something that came into the world because we fell into sin and God said, okay, therefore they're going to need a rest because they have fallen into sin. Instead, rest is a pre-fall blessing. Our rest the rest that we enjoy or will enjoy is patterned after God's rest. 
Now, of course, when we think about God's rest, we realize certain things. I mean, it has a depth and a richness to it that I think we can spend lots of our lives thinking about and reflecting on. But in any case, we do appreciate this, right? That God didn't need a rest in the sense that you and I sometimes need a rest, a break from something. God didn't get tired. He didn't need to restore his strength so that he could then go on to do something else. God didn't need to sleep. He didn't need to take a nap. God didn't need that kind of a rest. But nevertheless, whatever we want to say about God's rest, what is clear is that God rested on the seventh day, and then he established it, he created that, he, he, he worked this world and our hearts as well so that we are to enter into that same pattern, that pattern of creation rest. Now perhaps there are times in our human hubris, where we might be tempted to think, you know, I don't need rest, or at least I don't need as much rest as somebody else needs. Rest is for people who are weak. Rest is for people who are old and need to take a nap periodically because they don't have as much strength as they used to have. I don't need eight hours of sleep one of, the, uh, one of the books that I read over the course of this sabbatical was uh, a book called Reset. And in that book, the, the author has one chapter that is dedicated to sleep in particular. And he notes studies that have been done on sleep and, and notes of significant uh, high-level athletes. And he gives three examples of Tiger Woods, uh, LeBron James, and uh, Roger Federer. And the amount of sleep that these guys get is extraordinary. It's, it's something like 12 to 13 hours a night, especially before uh, a game is what they seek to have and seek to have as rest. It's extraordinarily ex- extraordinary, but some of us might think, you know what, I just don't need eight hours I can do with less. I don't need to observe a Sabbath. I can keep pressing on with whatever my work is, and I certainly don't need a sabbatical. Pastors may need a sabbatical, but then, you know, they're pastors. But the rest of us, we don't need sabbaticals. We can push through it because, after all, there is work to be done. But even as John Milton wrote in Paradise Lost, even in the cycle of 24 hours, night bids us rest. Now, that's a passage in Paradise Lost that I've quoted for us a number of times. Usually, I quote it in the context of work because Eve asks Adam in this fictionalized account of creation, why is it that we need to go to bed? Why do we need to rest right now? And Adam says, it's because God has given all of this for us to do that we actually now need rest so that we can be restored and do the thing that God has given to us. Night bids us rest. Uh, Another author says this, Jesus wept is a verse that we all recognize the significance of. But he says what might be just as significant as Jesus wept is Jesus slept. That might be just as significant of a statement that our Lord and his humanity needed to rest. Your pastor needed a sabbatical, needed a time of rest. 
That was the primary goal, emotional and spiritual, intellectual rest, even a sort of physical rest, although I did a lot of physical work during it, there was nevertheless a physical rest. And there was a relational rest as well. A friend of mine, a a dear brother, uh, an elder in the PCA, uh, a man who I've known for all of my adult life early on in the sabbatical, wrote to me a a wonderful little email. It was very brief. Uh, And in the email that he wrote to me, he said, Eric, what are you seeking to accomplish for your sabbatical? And uh, I caught my breath. I waited a day. I responded to him. And I said, brother, I said, I'm irritated by your use of the word accomplish. Accomplish is what I do when I'm ministering, when I'm, when I'm if you will, working, when I'm, when I'm doing that. I don't want to accomplish anything. I, I have zero accomplishment as the goal of this sabbatical. Or if you want to put it another way, the thing that I want to accomplish is I want to rest. That's the accomplishment that I would like to have at the end of this sabbatical. Now, uh, I did then proceed to write four things that I hope to accomplish uh, during the sabbatical, but nevertheless, that was the context. They were set in context of the primary thing, and the primary thing was indeed that I'd have an opportunity uh, to rest. And he wrote back and said, sorry about that, (laughs) didn't mean to uh, irritate you on your sabbatical. But nevertheless, there is a need for rest. There's a plan for rest. The pursuit of rest is not inherently ignoble. The pursuit of rest is not inherently ignoble. In fact, it is quite biblical. There is a grand distinction between being lazy, being slothful, and striving after rest. Now, I'm not going to try and unpack that today, but that might be a good lunch conversation to have today or a good uh, small group study conversation to have. What's the difference between laziness, slothfulness, and biblical rest? Verse 11 in this passage says it as clearly as it can, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Strive to enter into it. That's the same kind of concept that the the writer will pick up later in this letter, and we're probably a little bit more familiar with it as it comes later in this letter, where he urges us to pursue peace or to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive after rest, he says. Now, in fact, the word strive there has got the exact same root as uh, you find in 2 Peter chapter 1, which I mention in particular because our Sunday school classes have been focused on this. Make every effort. That's the same idea here. That's the same word that is here. Strive, make every effort to enter into this rest that is being described. Part of me actually just wanted to dovetail uh, this sermon and really these sermons for the rest of this month into what I was preaching right before the sabbatical. Remember, I did a very brief series on the spiritual disciplines, and we started that with the make every effort, and that's why it was preceded or continued into the fall with that same idea. 
make, I, I wanted to call this one the discipline of rest, of striving after rest. And, and the very combination of those words, I hope for us, just kind of awakens us a little bit to say, okay, what exactly are we talking about here? When you're talking about discipline and rest, when you put those two terms together, and when you put together a term like striving, working, doing your very best, giving it all, giving it your all, making every effort, and you put that together with rest, those are things that we might think are in distinction from one another, and yet here they're put right together to strive to enter into rest. We are uh, restless people. We live in a restless world. We have restless hearts and we have restless souls. That is our common shared existential reality. Restlessness exists in this world. Augustine got hold of it, right? And this is probably in some of your heads already. We quote it often and deservedly so. But at the beginning of his confessions, that great line, our hearts are, are restless till they find their rest in thee. So the writer of Hebrews holds out rest as a goal as an aim, as a target. Go after it. Strive after that. There is a standing promise that is here. There is a standing offer that is made here. There is an open door. There is a gateway into rest, and we are called. We are invited. We are summoned to enter into that rest. We are commanded to strive after rest. And let's be clear. This is no casual invite. This isn't, this isn't someone saying, oh, it'd be great if I could get a little bit of rest. It'd be great if I could get some time off and have a little bit of rest. There is, in fact, a severe warning that is attached to failing to enter into this rest. It's set forth right at the beginning, and if we went back into chapter 3, we'd see the same idea as well. The very first verse says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Fear. Failure to enter into this rest is grounded in unbelief. It's demonstrated then in disobedience. And get this and get it very clearly. Entering into God's rest isn't assumed here as the end of everyone's life journey. It doesn't matter what you believe. You could be a complete atheist. But if someone dies and you're writing a tweet, you'll end your tweet with what? Rest in peace. Rest in peace. But for the writer of Hebrews, for the, for the world, that's an assumption. Rest in peace. You, you'll rest in peace. For the writer of Hebrews, that's no assumption. A peaceful rest is not an assumption. It's something you have to strive towards. You don't just get it. You have to strive after entering into that rest. In fact, there have been many hard hearts that have fallen by the way, that fell in the wilderness, and that failed to enter into that rest. Now let's consider here for a moment three 
kind of dimensions of this rest that are within the text itself. This is not an outline of the sermon. This is just think of, think of this in three ways that our author is presenting to us, and I'm going to present them in a logical order, whereas our author is, is moving around in the way he is describing this here. So the first dimension, if you will, the first idea of rest is creational rest, right? The, the creational rest. We are called into God's creational rest. Verses 3 and 4 are a little bit confusing, but let me read them for us again and, 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 and again pull off the idea that is at least right on the surface of these. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works, what rest are we talking about? His works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. What rest are you talking about entering into? The answer is, it's God's rest. My rest. It's the creation rest. And of course, then we cite here Genesis chapter 2 to indicate what kind of rest? What rest are you talking about? And then if you move on to verse 10, for, who has, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as, God's, as God did from his. God's rest. Whoever has entered into God's rest. We're, we're entering into a rest that isn't just out there somewhere. It's very particular. It's God's rest that we're entering into. There's a creational rest. So when we uh, read the Ten Commandments today, and you're familiar with this, but when we read the Ten Commandments today from Exodus, their first giving in Exodus, and you get to that fourth commandment, and it says, uh, you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, the reason that is given for it is, in verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the reason given in Exodus chapter 20 for the Ten Commandments or for the obedience to the Fourth Commandment is God's creational rest. You do it because God did it. It's God's rest. You enter into that rest. But there's a second type of rest that is described here as well. There's a redemptive rest that is described. And, and here's the reason for it. The reason for it, this redemptive rest that is being described, is that because of our fall into sin, it actually has become impossible in and of ourselves to enter into that rest. Because we're blocked out. We're blocked out by our sinfulness. Our ugliness doesn't allow us to enter into God's rest. And so there is this redemptive rest. And if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, this is reflected again in the fourth commandment. And you'll recognize this. The reason given for obedience to the fourth commandment is, in Deuteronomy 5.15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So you ask a question. Why did God command us to keep the Sabbath day? Was it because, A, God rested on the Sabbath day, or B, because he took you out of the land of Egypt? Both are set forth, right? And both are set forth not in obscure places. In the Ten Commandments themselves, they're set forth. The answer is you're entering into creational rest via the redemptive rest that God has established for his people. The Sabbath rest is then both commemorative and part of creation 
and redemption. And the symbol of this rest in particular was not only the enduring principle of the Sabbath day itself, but in the Old Covenant in particular, the idea of rest was associated with entrance into the promised land, the land of rest. And so our author begins to look at it in that particular way to see that this redemption that takes place when I bring you out of Egypt and I bring you into this land, this land, this place of rest, that's the place where you will begin to experience it. It is a special redemption, a spatial representation of this rest that God has provided. Now some eventually entered into that rest, the rest that is the land of Canaan, via Joshua, right? In in, in verse 8, it says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day. Now there's a contrast being made here, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But here's the reality, right? Many of them fell in the wilderness. Moses himself was not able to enter into the land of rest, but many did through Joshua. Now here's something interesting. We've talked about this before, but the name Joshua and Jesus, when you bring them into Greek, are the exact same name. So if, by chance, you happen to have a King James Bible in front of you today, you're going, wait a minute, mine doesn't say what yours just said, because in the King James Bible, it doesn't say Joshua there, it says Jesus. For if Jesus had given them rest. Why? It's exactly the same word. It's exactly the same name. And so the author is kind of giving you a clue. Think here, think here, there's one person, there's an Old Testament, Joshua slash Jesus, who brought people into the land of Canaan, but didn't actually bring them rest. There's another New Testament, New Covenant, Joshua slash Jesus, and there's a rest that is also held out, a greater rest that is held out in him. But a rebellious generation fell in the wilderness. God did not allow them to enter it because of their rebellion, because of their hard hearts, because of their unbelief, because of their disobedience. They didn't get into the spatial representation of rest, which was Canaan itself. God wasn't deceived about them. They were traveling along with the people of God, but God knew what was in their hearts. He saw the rebelliousness. He saw the hard-heartedness, and that's the point you might wonder like at the end of this passage, why is that section there that we quote often about the word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword? Why is that here? It's here as a reflection to say simply, God isn't fooled. He's not fooled with respect to entering into the rest. He knows exactly what is inside of us. He knows what's going on inside of our hearts, inside of our minds, the thoughts that are inside of us. We are all naked before him, and he's not deceived. And as a result of that, many fell and did not enter into that place. But there's the final then dimension of God's rest. There's the creational rest. There's the redemptive rest. And there's a clarification then about entrance into God's rest to say, listen, the idea of entering God's rest, this is speaking to the Jews in particular, is not exhausted by Joshua's leading of the people into the land. That was a token, that was a symbol, that was a prefiguring, that was a model of rest, but it wasn't everything. 
And the, the passage that is quoted a number of times here, and only one time spoken of as David in particulars, is Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is referenced here, and the point of the reference is David, long after Joshua, and within the land itself, David can still speak of entering into the rest of God, even long after Joshua had brought them into this place. And we are assured then here that there is an enduring rest, a creational rest, a redemptive rest, and an enduring rest that is available, a rest in which we can enter and enjoy even now and in all fullness through all eternity. Verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The writer is articulating for us. It's different. It's different than what it looked like under the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, it looked like going into Canaan. It's different than that, but it remains. There is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And there is, in fact, as it makes clear, an urgent todayness about this rest. Again, this is, sorry, this is verse 7. Again, he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And the point that the author is making here is that even though, even though the promise was given to Moses, and even though Joshua himself brought people into the land, David can pick up on the same promise and say, it's today. It's not about some other day. It's today. It's today for anyone who is hearing this message right here. It's today for every generation that hears the good news. So when you hear the good news of Jesus Christ that you are hearing today, it is today. It is that day right now. Verse 2, for good news came to us just as it did to them. It came to them as well. They heard good news. They heard good news about the promise of rest and it comes to us as well. So what is this rest? What are we talking about here? What is the rest? Well, first of all, it is a rest from. It is a rest from the vanity of this world. It is a rest from all of our scurrying about after vain pursuits that in fact will not bring us any kind of peace. Good things that God places into this world for us to glorify him and to enjoy him, but yet when we pursue them outside of him and outside of his rest, they will grant to us no peace. It's a rest from weariness. It's a rest from bearing your own burdens. It is a rest from self-trust. It is a rest from self-determination. It is a rest from the lonely futility of trying to forge your own path, follow your own heart, and make your own way it is a rest from worry and uncertainty. But it's not just a rest from, as if this rest is just an immediate cessation of all activity where you just stop doing anything. It's a rest unto. It is a rest in the first place unto the worship of God. 
That Psalm 95 passage that is quoted here with the warning given from David. That is a passage about entering into the presence of God for worship. To come into the presence of God and worship. That day, that Sabbath, is set apart as a holy convocation for the people of God to come together and to worship him. It is a rest unto the worship of God. It is a rest unto friendship and fellowship with God's people. It is a rest unto, and hear this carefully, labor that is not or is no longer vanity. I have talked to dear friends this week who have talked about the vanity that they feel in their own work. They go to work and it's the same stuff that you do time after time and it doesn't seem to make any difference to anyone in the world and it feels absolutely vain. This is a rest unto a meaningful work because of the one unto whom that very work is done. That's the transforming part of it. It's done unto the glory of God and when your work is done unto the glory of God there is no vanity in that work that is being done. It is a rest unto the way of God, a rest unto the ancient paths. This is our church verse motto. Jeremiah 6.16, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Rest isn't just sitting still. It's having the good way revealed to you and then walking in the good way. That's the rest that is being described here. It's a rest unto the yoke of Christ, which is ultimately easy and light. And here this last aspect of this rest. It is not only a rest from and a rest unto, it is a rest into, a rest into joy a rest into peace. It isn't only a rest into a land, come to a nice land that is safe. It's not just a new perspective. It's not just less work to do. It is rest into a person. It is rest into the person of Christ, into the very heart of Christ. It is a rest into the embrace of Christ. It is a rest into laying your head on the chest of Christ himself. That is the rest, a rest into a person. The call from Jesus is not come into Canaan and you'll find rest there. The call from Jesus is come to me. Come to me. Rest is here. Rest is in me. Come to me. Abide in me. That's where the rest is found. Jesus, the God-man, has entered into the rest of God the Father. Now, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the eternal Word of God, always was from the beginning, enjoyed the peace of God, the rest of God the Father, in the presence of God the Father, But Jesus, the God-man, the incarnate one, when he enters into that 
a man has gone up into that rest and entered into that rest for us. And that's why you pick this up here in uh, verse 14, which, again, you can look at it as that which launches the next section, but I think verse 14 is trying to say, look at the one you're resting into. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, who has gone up into that place, who has entered into God's rest, God's eternal creational rest. Since that's true, then hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to your belief. Hold fast to the things that are true. Hold fast to the good news that you have heard. Because in that one who is already there is your hope as well. And he bids us rest into him, through him, with him. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. You couldn't go to the place of rest. The place of rest is in the presence of God himself. You couldn't go there except for the fact that Jesus, the high priest, has gone there. So now, come near. Come near. Come and enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy, the peace that is your master's. There remains then, here's the point, the Sabbath rest for the people of God. Strive to enter it. Strive to live in the rest. And this is another way of simply saying, believe the good news of Jesus. He lived and he died and he lives that you, through faith in him, might find what? Rest for your souls. That's what he's holding out. He's holding out rest for your souls. Come to me. Put those other strivings aside. Come to me, into me, and there you will find rest for your souls. My sabbatical was a sweet time of rest. How was your sabbatical? It was a sweet time of rest. And I say that unapologetically. We all practice sabbatical and enter into it today. Today. Today is the day of resurrection. Today is the Lord's day. Today is the day that the Lord has made. And the people of God, when they hear this today, say, we call this day a delight. A delight. To be in worship, to hear from God, to be with the people of God on this day of days. My sabbatical would not have been as sweet without the knowledge that today, this day, yes, there was some trepidation thinking about this day from time to time, but it would not have been as sweet without the knowledge that on November 5th, 2023, we would return to this worship with you in the house of God, and enter in together once again to the Sabbath rest. To come into this place with all of our uniqueness, all of our quirkiness, and to worship together and rest against the Lord and in the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish you then Shabbat Shalom.
a peaceful rest. A peaceful Sabbath rest. Lord, we thank you for such an invitation, such a command, such a calling that you have given to us as your people. May none be left outside of the rest who has heard these words today. This is the good news that the way is open through your Son. May we enter into it. May we inhabit it, enjoy it, live in it. In your name we pray. Amen.